Welcome to The Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of The Sendcast. We started The Sendcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. You can spend lots of hours trawling the internet or reading books, but we don't have the time. We created The Sendcast to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers to support all pupils and to help support staff be more aware. It is important to get the same consistent message to schools and parents and The Sendcast is a great way to achieve this. My guest this week is Sarah Jane Critchley. Sarah Jane is a regular on the podcast. She is an author, speaker, consultant, and coach. And on this week's podcast, we're going to be discussing talking to parents about SEM. Now, before we get started, the Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Square. And over the last 25 years, we have supported schools to support students with SEND. The last few years, we have diversified. For years, we focus on assessment. This will always be our main focus, as it is really important but we have seen a lack of high quality, easy to access training in CPD for schools around SEMD. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started two years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing talking to parents about SEND. Discussing this with me is Sarah Jane Critchley from Different Joy Partnership. Sarah Jane was previously the program manager of the Autism Education Trust, where she commissioned the AET School Standards and Competency Framework. Welcome to the show, Sarah Jane. Hello. So, talking to about to parents about SEND, especially those first conversations, can be extremely daunting. But it is important to talk about things early on and not put them off, isn't it? Absolutely. So, shall we dive straight in? Because it is, because some of those first conversations you're going to have are, you're going to have, let's say you've got a child in your school and you start having those concerns, they might. You've got to approach that parent and going, your child may have SEND. And you don't know how they're going to react. And you're probably expecting a negative reaction. So it could be what you experience will be very varied. And I think it probably helps if I start off by telling you our story. Because we have a personal story of this. I have two children who have different needs and who would both qualify as having special educational needs, both have SEND. I have a daughter who's now 22 and is autistic with ADHD and dyspraxia, dyslexia and everything else. And I have a boy who's now 19 who's also got a diagnosis of autism and dyslexia. And our story reflects that of a lot of parents. Having talked to loads and loads of parents, again and again, I hear the same themes coming out over again and again. And the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was just to, to tell you kind of how it happened to us so that you can understand what that might be like for you if you're trying to have a conversation with someone. So way, 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 way back when, had this amazing baby, my gorgeous little daughter, and she waved her arms and she did all the normal gooing and all the rest, but didn't seem to be hearing the same way as everybody else. So she had grommets fitted. 
when she was about two and a half because she wasn't responding and we went, she had hearing tests and they said, yes, there's definitely a problem, glue ear, blah, 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 blah. Let's give her some grommets. So at about two and a half years old, she had grommets fitted and then those worked for a little while, but there still seemed to be something going on with her attention. So she went to nursery from a very early age because I went back to work when she was nine months old. So she had spent a lot of time in different settings rather than just with me. And the people in the settings that she was in kept coming back to me and saying, we think there's something wrong with her. And that was the way they said it. I was about to say, did they use the term wrong? Yeah, they did. The Sorry, best. I'm screwing up my face when I say that. <laughs> so, hmm. yeah, my nose is wrinkled, my mouth is puckered, and I've got a slightly unhappy face. So they said she's not doing what we expect. And one of the places that she was at at one point were very concerned because the minute they had music classes in her nursery, she would run away and go and hide in the toilets. And bearing in mind, this is a very small child who can't get out of doors very easily. This is not something that they were used to seeing. Knowing her now, as we do, we knew she loved music. We knew that she was really geared into music and she could hear it and she was responding to it, but she wouldn't respond when they talked to her. And the minute that this cacophonous thing that is a music class, in inverted commas, in nursery happened, she would run away. And then she wouldn't come back because what she was doing was she was sitting in the toilets and singing to herself. She sang everywhere. She has an amazing voice, an amazing memory for, for tunes and music. And she would just sing and sing and sing and sing. And they said, we can't get her to come back. <laughs> why should, we don't know why she's not coming back in to the room and why she's running out. And we're worried about what she'll do when she goes to school because we're worried. And this is my favorite phrase for you not to use, that she won't access the curriculum. So this phrase kept coming back to me again and again and again, like this, like the curriculum should be some gold-plated thing that everyone should fight their way towards, like a prize in a video game or something. I'm going to fight my way to get to the curriculum, as opposed to it being play-based or exploration-based or interest-based or something that actually makes the child engage. And at home, what we saw was a child who would respond to us, who would laugh, who would smile, who was physically active. She was babbling. She used far more words than you'd expect for her age. She would, we had talking books. So um, I was brought up a very, very long time ago, dear listener. And way, way back in my history, I used to listen to Disney stories on a 45 record with a little booklet that came with it. And Tinkerbell would go, and now it's time for you to turn the page. Ding, ding. And you see the little ring of the bell and you turn over the page. So I learned to read by having this talking book way before audiobooks were a thing. This was on her record. And I used to put my teddy on the end and the teddy fell off when <laughs> it got to the end. It's kind of... So, when she was very little and I had a second child and we thought, oh my God, what are we going to do with this child whilst we've got this other baby? We thought, right, brilliant. Get her lots of talking books. So she was really engaged in the story. She was really captivated by the stories and she was very happy in her own company. So there's a, she's doing well, she's responding, she's engaging, Absolutely. she's inquisitive, yep. high language use, seeing that lots of good positive things. Loads of good positive things. Went to nursery, all of a sudden it's, oh, She's singing all the time. There's me thinking, yeah, okay, singing doesn't feel like a bad thing, but actually when you're trying to teach something, I get that that could be difficult. And she will exit if it's something that she doesn't like or struggles to do. And she wasn't very well physically coordinated, so other children would run and she'd fall over. <laughs> it's kind of a lovely girl, even now. 
on a flat surface, she will trip over her own feet. <laughs> you know, the corners of tables are problematic because they tend to produce bruises at hip height. <laughs> that's kind of, and still do. <laughs> it's kind of that's, so door handles are a thing. You know, she's just, it, it's a real issue. Walking downstairs was something actually that we noticed that she, most children will get to the stage where they do one foot and then the opposite foot, then the opposite foot, then the opposite foot. She would always do two feet on one step, then another two feet, then another two feet and another two feet. And that was one of the things that we noticed. But what we saw was an amazing, beautiful, engaged, fascinated, chatty, interactive young person. And what they saw was somebody who wasn't responding, exited, wasn't doing what they were told, and was uncooperative and wouldn't access the curriculum. Air quotes again. That set off a huge bomb in our lives because the picture of the person that we knew and know and love versus the picture that we were being given at nursery were completely different polar opposites almost yeah now understanding that we weren't in schools and we weren't familiar with what schools were going to require of her to be able to learn i fully get that but the way that it was suggested to us was never that she has real strengths in these and these are how we can use them it was a she is failing to do this. And we started a whole journey of going around so many different professionals to try and work out what was, in inverted commas, wrong with our daughter. So we went to pediatricians, we went to hearing people. She had two sets of grommets. The second set, I'm still convinced she didn't need from an auditory point of view. She had issues with auditory processing, but that wasn't a hearing issue. That's an auditory processing issue, and it's not the same thing. Yep. She also had attention problems because she has ADHD. And because, frankly, some of the things that they were talking about were sufficient, weren't sufficiently interesting for her to want to engage with them. And she was a very high IQ child, which makes it really difficult. So twice exceptionality is a thing. And this isn't just me being, a, oh, my daughter's wonderful, because that's really annoying and frankly a bit obnoxious. So I apologize if it sounds like that. But every test that we did says she's really intelligent. And everything she did at school or at nursery showed that there was a massive gap, that there was a gap between what she's capable of doing and what we could see and what she was demonstrating on paper. So that made life really, really difficult for her when she got to school. And we, we did this traipsing around from place to place to place to place. And everybody we spoke to said she has impairments, she has a delay, she has difficulties, she can't, she won't, she isn't. And for a long time, for us as a family, that put us in a really, really difficult place. I can imagine because all you're hearing is, as you said, you've got this beautiful child. You're literally every weekend is full of fun and happiness. But all you're being told is your daughter's not right. Yeah. It's what's wrong with my daughter. And then we started what I've come to refer to as one of the worst periods of my life. <laughs> it's called Project Beth. where We spent seven years trying to fix what was wrong with our daughter. What we've been told was wrong with our daughter. And we went around trying every educational intervention, every movement program, anything that didn't involve drugging her into insensibility, we tried. So we didn't do anything that would actively harm her, but we tried everything that we thought would make a difference. And that was exhausting. And when I look back on it, I, there were things that seemed to make a difference, but actually I'm not convinced that those wouldn't have happened anyway because she was growing and developing. And I think there is a real risk that unsupported parents will go to desperate places. Yes. And 
I was very clear that I was going to research anything and make sure that it was not actively harmful. I know that some parents have ended up chasing snake oil and using things that are actively harmful, not because they want to harm their children, but because they don't know that that is damaging. So one thing I want to touch on here is basically your daughter didn't conform. She didn't fit in. Absolutely. And there are things, and what you're trying to do in some ways is and this is what some people, they're trying to make their child normal again. They want, I want, my, I want everyone to stop saying my child's wrong. I want to normalize yeah. them. And everything is different. So I'm, going to start, I'm going to start saying that every child, every situation is different. But I'm not going to go into things, but I've, I've read some of the options. So sometimes children stim. They do something to release. They release things, yeah? And well, then, though, that's negative. We'll stop that. What you're now doing is removing their release and although they might appear normal that's on the outside and what's going on on the inside is very different and as you will be aware there is a high suicide rate with autism so Mm -hmm. when when parents you're thinking about what's right for my child are you really trying to make them conform for them or for you and to my shame at that point i was trying to make her normal because that's what i felt I needed to do you thought for her that was to be what, able to cope. You thought that was, was best for her because yeah. that's what everyone tells you. And I now know I was so, so wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong. It was the biggest mistake of my entire life. But I learned a lot along the way and she wasn't actively harmed. The thing that did harm us as a family was that we were so unable to enjoy that period. It took the joy of having an amazing, interactive, fascinating, joyful, bubbly, creative, small human into me turning into somebody who spent all their time saying, no, you mustn't do that. Don't touch that. Sit there. Do that. Pay attention to this. You've got to do this now. Come and do that. And not giving her time to be her, not giving her time to do the things that she loved and not actually just joining in with her. And, and really loving that time. And I missed that time as a result. And I really regret that. There's very little I regret in my life. And that's one thing I do. So we kind of, that was our process up until she was about seven or eight. And then at one point, I just turned around and I stopped taking everything that the professionals said to me for granted <laughs> as being gospel and started going, hmm, okay, so if those are the options, I went, we went back to her ADA. HD clinic. Sorry, I should go back and say. So at three, she was diagnosed with dyspraxia and she's on the 0.03 percentile as some of the least coordinated children in Christendom. (laughs) So incredibly dyspraxic. At seven, she was diagnosed with ADHD, inattentiveness type, dreamy and inattentive because she was someone who's away with the fairies. And she had her own dialogue going on and her own dialogue was fascinating. So why on earth she could bothered paying attention to what anybody else was saying is irrelevant. And then she was eventually diagnosed with autism at the age of 17. So it's a long, long, long old journey and a long process of people saying she's not doing this, she can't do that, she's, you know, all of that stuff. Just to be clear, am I right in believing that the United Nations decreed, like with DSM-5 or one of them, that you couldn't have ADHD and autism? It was one or the other. No, I don't think so. There's something, so, I, I talked about one of them is two conditions you used, didn't use to have together under one. Yeah, in DSM-4, I think they're exclusive um, criteria, but in 5, they admitted that you could have both. Yes. 
how, how um, I, I some of the it. pathways were exclusive. So in if you look at adult, the adult diagnostic pathway in Kent said that if you had autism, you couldn't be assessed for ADHD. And if you had ADHD, you couldn't be assessed for autism. I, that, that is the most. Since bon- no, it probably hasn't. But it might, hopefully it has. But that here and there, I think Finton told me that was just the most bonkers thing I'd ever heard. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. And what we know about humans is that we don't exist in one little box. No. We are all varied, fascinating, wonderful people who are a, a mix and a smorgasbord. I love that word, smorgasbord. Smorgasbord. Of, of all sorts of wonderful bits and pieces and things and strengths and issues and challenges and experiences and preferences and character, as well as all those other things. And we were missing all of that. And throughout our journey, and why this matters to our listener now is that when we spoke to different people, each of those professionals that we had contact with had an opportunity to make a real difference. And I call these moments of truth. So each of the times where we met somebody, they had the opportunity to be the one person who said, she has these issues, she also has these strengths, and you can use these to help outweigh those and this is the way you know there was a real opportunity to make it a strengths-based approach to make it a a, an approach that recognized and valued her as a human of equal value as anyone else not as someone who is failing to be a version of normal she doesn't have to be normal she has to be the best beth she can ever be and she is flipping marvelous she's amazing if she had tried to be somebody else she would be a failed version of somebody else but it takes a, it's a, it always takes everyone a long time to realize that. And the hard thing in life is still, and I don't see it changing for a long time, you have to conform in education. So you have to conform till you're 16. When you're 18, 16 to 18, you've got a lot of other options. When you're 18, you are free to be who you are. As you all know, it's not the neurotypical people which change the world. (laughs) Neurodiverse changes the world. They're the ones who think outside the box. They're the one who look at a problem a different way and go, just do this. It's those that change the world. And if we conform that out of them, we're not going to change the world. The thing that would really have made a difference in each of those conversations was that nobody ever asked us what our experience of her was. No. Nobody ever asked us what she loves. Nobody ever asked us where she was really, really good or really, really strong. They just told us what they thought. And so they were refusing to acknowledge the real strength she has. And that was is a really bad way to start the conversation. So if we're talking about starting the conversation, you start with the strength. You start with the fact that you're recognizing a human who has value. And it doesn't matter whether they speak or they don't, whether they're using a wheelchair or they're walking around, whether they're the fastest thing on two legs or they can't walk in a straight line. That doesn't matter. If they wear glasses or they don't wear glasses, it's, it's irrelevant. They're a human being of equal value. And you have to start from that rather than saying you're a, a failed version of normal. Definitely. So what can you actually do to approach that conversation in a way that's respectful but is helpful to the parent and to the development of the child? Because you're seeing things that are different. You're seeing things that may need specific support. You're seeing things that you have to identify a gap or a difference and work out whether that's something that has to be worked on. And if so, what you're going to do to do that. So how on earth do you, dear listener, do that? (laughs) Because I've just told you how to do it wrong. (laughs) So so let's try thinking about what it might have been like and what what really good examples I've seen of how this has been done really well. And I... 
I so wish I'd come into contact with some of the amazing professionals that I've had the privilege to work with. Because if I had seen some of these people, or if any of those people had come and stood by me as I'd experienced these, I would not have been actively suicidal at times. People talk about like the good news, bad news sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Name for that. Yeah. But you sit there going, right, I've got to tell Sarah Jane this. I'll find something good to say first, which will then, it's kind of what you do. If you've got to deliver bad news, good news, bad news. Yeah. And that's the thing is, and it sounds horrible saying good news, bad, but it is, is, yeah, there are some negatives where they don't conform. But as you said, for most of these children, there are lots of positives. Yeah. There mm. are, there are children. I, I, I used to, my mum taught in a special school. Whenever my school had it was closed and hers wasn't, I would be in hers helping out. I had so much fun. The nicest kids, the response. And I, I've been to schools with um, is B squared. And I've gone to a school and a child said hello. You know, there's just those children who will say hello to everyone mm. and introduce themselves and talk at you. And I went back like a year, two years later. He sees me and greets me by my first name. And I was like, wow, Brilliant. it's so nice. So, yeah, there are some negatives, but there's often positives. There's, there are there. Yeah, you might have to go and squint and find them because you're looking at through a conformatist's eyes. But there are often positives which make that person unique and memorable and you look forward to seeing them and they change the way you look at things. You've got to talk about that as well. Absolutely. There's a wonderful book written by, I think it's John Williams, I hope I've got his second name right, called My Son's Not Rain Man. And John is fantastic, does a stand-up routine as well. He's ah. really, really funny and really, really poignant. And he describes his, his journey with his autistic son. And one of the things that he says is that you haven't experienced joy until you've seen a non-verbal special school disco <laughs> where, <laughs> where people are dancing like Nobody's watching because, frankly, they don't care. And there's always one kid who's gone around licking all of the custard creams and then putting them back on the table. And everyone's dancing to their own music, playing to their own strengths and having the best time in the world. I saw him um, do a session at the autism show. I think mm. it was London or somewhere. He delivered it. And he talked about, um, he thought about taking his son to Legoland, but it would be too much stress. So what they did is they he took him to Docklands Light Railway, uh, yeah. took one of those steering wheels you can stick on. And yeah. um, we sat there and we had hours of fun driving this train. And after five hours, I let him have a go. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And it is, it's fantastic. It's it, it helps you sort of see that what you think someone needs to have fun or what they need to have fun are very different things. And it is, you kind of got to find out from them what they want, who they are, their strengths, their weaknesses. Anyway, back to the mm. podcast. <laughs> so we were talking about, no, but that's, it's important to recognise strengths and yeah. joy. And I think recognising joy is something we need to do more of, especially if you're, if you're struggling with a child who's doing things differently, you'll feel the social pressure of it being different. Parents are really responding to you differently in the playground. You're probably getting them, why haven't they done this? Or why did they do that? You know, it's, so it can be very difficult emotionally. The journey is difficult as a parent. And that's not because you don't love your child or you don't believe in them. It's society's pressures on that situation that make it difficult. So what can you actually do? that's going to change the dynamic in that conversation. So the first thing that I would always suggest is that you do your observation very carefully and you sit down, you note what you think is different 
from what you would expect to see. And you just write down what it is that's different. So if they're always playing on their own, you write down so-and-so tends to play on their own. If they're picking up sand and throwing it repetitively, you'd put they are picking up sand and throwing it repetitively. You know, it's just what they're doing. You're noting what they're doing. You're not adding a judgment onto it. Yep. So it's not so-and-so is playing on their own, but they need to be with all the other little children playing football. You know, it's just a statement of fact. Keep it to statements of fact. And don't write, he's not playing with others. That's quite negative. He, he likes playing on his own. Yeah, and that matters because he may be self-sufficient and he may be happy in his own company. And actually, when has that been useful in the last yeah. couple of years? You know, people happy to play in their own company? Great. Brilliant. Very helpful. Self-reliance is something we like adults to be, but we get a bit annoyed if children do it sometimes, don't we? Yes. So the first thing is to make your observations and make them very carefully. The second thing, when you have that conversation, is to ask parents what they see and what they're worried about before you tell them anything you've seen. Because this should be a partnership. The reason you're having the conversation is because you want to work with the parents to help the child in whatever way is necessary and you decide as a team at the end. So you need to ask parents what they see and what they're experiencing because what they experience at home matters. And they may have a part of the picture that you're not seeing. So if you're seeing a child that doesn't speak at all at school, but they're gabbling away at home, that tells you something about the environment. That tells you that they may not be choosing, they may be choosing not to speak, they may not be comfortable in that environment. Maybe you need to provide a single communication partner for them rather than a whole group and expect them to do a presentation to the whole class. You know, there are things that you need to know. If you open that conversation, it's a very different dynamic. So the next thing you want to do, if you're a teacher, is you'll want to recruit the help of your SENCO because they probably have more experience and have better training to enable them to help unpack what the issues might be and what might be underlying those issues. So don't, if you're a teacher, don't think you're on your own in trying to sort this. You have a resource that you can use. So speak to your SENCO. They will have access to call in additional support if the school needs it. And most schools will have access to a support service, whether it's from the local authority or from an external partner, who will be looking for very specific profiles and very specific patterns of behavior, who will be able to give you a different perspective. And you want different perspectives to give you a rounded picture of what you're seeing. We then want you to start giving examples and you have to make it really concrete. So you wouldn't say, that's really unfriendly, Yep. You would say in at PE when we were doing, I don't know, passing the ball, Beth didn't choose to go and play with somebody else. You know, that's an active choice. That's an example. Yep. You would give a tangible, concrete example of something you have seen. You don't make wider generalizations yep. because they're not helpful and you're adding your own judgment onto the situation. Because you're assuming because she doesn't do X, she doesn't do X, Y and Z. And the thing that we need to guard against, particularly when we have a bit of knowledge, is making assumptions. Yes. So to a man with a hammer, everything's a nail. <laughs> so, so because if you're an expert in autism, don't expect everything you see to be autism. If you're an expert in dyslexia, don't expect everything to be dyslexia. You know, it, there are people who have different aspects of different things and be open so the possibility that it may be something you don't know about or something you haven't seen, or it may be something brand new. 
<laughs> it's kind of every child's different. And one of the joys about working in education is you meet different people and they bring different challenges and they bring out new challenges for you. And I remember Dean Beadle, the amazing adult Dean. I'm, I know he listens to this. So hello, Dean, when you listen to this. One of the wonderful things that he said is like name checking um, Jason Isaacs on <laughs> on the film podcast. Sorry, Jason, if you're listening, I, this one isn't for you, but this one is for Dean. He said that his teacher said that she had called forth from herself brand new things because he was the most difficult to teach child that she's ever reached. She was He was the most challenging. He in, made her research more, learn more, investigate more in order to meet this challenge and was delighted to do that. That is a brilliant example of a teacher, someone who rises to that challenge. Now, I appreciate you're all completely shattered right now, but you will, if you stay in the career long enough, you will love those children yep. who teach you things that you I wouldn't have learned teaching the bog standard group because they'll make you come alive. So that's where your challenge is. That's where your love is. That's where it comes in. So giving examples, keeping them factual, keeping them balanced as well. Because when you're talking to parents, they have an emotional investment. They will be feeling a little raw just because you're having the conversation. Whether it's a good conversation or a less good conversation, they will be feeling vulnerable. But one of the things I would add into this is, as you said, you're going into a conversation. So it kind of if you've got this written down in your notebook and your notebook's pretty full, and this is all my views, you haven't really allowed in there the views of the parents. And I've seen paperwork which has come through, this is your child, and, the, and you've had to sort of say, well, actually, there's all of this. And they look at it and go, oh, that doesn't really fit in there. We'll write it. And I've seen somebody, they've got a list of how a child is, and someone said something, and they've not added to it, they've put it in the top corner. It basically mm. says, yeah, I don't believe you. That's not part of this information. Yeah, that's not, I, I'm, not, I'm not validating that. So this sort of thing is you could end up having, this is what we see at school, and you literally, you have a box, if this is written down, at home, which is blank. And you're showing, it sounds odd, but you're literally, by having this blank box to be filled in by the parents when you talk to them, you're saying to them, I want your input. This isn't finished. Whereas if you have this yeah, list, absolutely. and there's no place really obviously for the parents' input, you've already said, I've got everything I need. This, I've already judged your child. This is the end. Whereas if you are saying, right, here's our input, we have to have on the same piece of paper the input from the parents and it's ready and it's waiting and the parents are going and they're seeing that just by doing that it's a huge difference absolutely making space on that page for what you don't know yet is huge it tells the parents i can input my input is valid yeah and it sounds like a small thing oh no it's huge it's huge. it's huge. And we need to approach these conversations as partners in supporting the child. Yeah. And to add into that, possibly the most important thing, if you have any way of capturing it, is to include the voice of the child. And this is very rarely done. Including if they have no input or you've tried to have and they're not engaged. That is also valid. Oh, absolutely. And one of the best things is to find out why somebody does something. So there's always a why. You need to find out the why, and the why will tell you far more than what it is they are or are not doing. It's always about the why. So if I give an example, um, on one of the reports I have for my daughter, it said, failed to throw and catch a ball and wouldn't pay attention in PE, was standing there and staring at the window. Factual. 
Yep. Fair enough. What it had missed, I said, what happened? And then she described to me the fact that there were sun rays coming in through the window, which was really high, and then coming down diagonally across the hall. And the dust motes in the hall, cleaning was probably less good pre-COVID, and the dust motes in the hall were sparkling. And there was that amazing sparkling light coming through. And she was having a magical moment with these dust motes. It's no wonder she didn't catch a flipping ball that somebody threw at her. You just took me straight back to primary school. There you go. Sitting in the hall. I did the same thing. Yeah. And so what that says to me is there's two possibilities that would be worth exploring. One is, is there a sensory need, a visual sensory need, that she's responding to sparkly things and that gets her really engaged and happy. Um, The second is, is the thing that's being done sufficiently interesting to capture her interest? And the answer for anything PE-based for her would have been no. (laughs) And as someone who is extremely dyspraxic, you know, she would catch the ball after it had fallen down on the floor and rolled back to the person who threw it in the first place because she just didn't have that coordination. And the final thing is around when I actually asked her, that indicates a real creative love of thought because she was already thinking about how that worked. And the way she described it was really compelling. So she had already started the sort of skills that have taken her now to university to study English language because she was putting together the words to describe it in a really vibrant way. And that is a real strength. And from that one thing, you could have just said, got, can't catch a ball, wasn't paying attention, as opposed to is creative, is captured by details, has a sensory need, could really convey that into something amazing. So it's about trying to see those in a different way. And sometimes getting somebody else in from outside can help you to see that differently. But if you ask the child themselves, you will really get underneath what is causing the thing that you're noticing. And it will bring strengths as well as issues. So the couldn't catch it, missed it, is is as good an answer as I'm being incredibly creative and I want to do this incandescent light, you know, all that stuff. So it's about trying to capture that. And if you don't ask, you won't know. And we talked in a previous podcast about how upset I was about the one of the um, Please Don't Exclude Me programs. And that was around they didn't ask the child what was going on at all. Uh, uh, Yeah, you you just lots of things. And what is hard for teachers is there could be 30 Beths in that class. You've Mm. got to please them all, which is really hard. But you should have time. But why don't you have time? As I said on the previous podcast, pressures from local authorities and league tables to be X, Y, and Z and get through enough of the curriculum and do this, which means you can't actually sit down and actually go, what is it these children need? What are we more engaging for these children? You can't, yeah, teach 30 very individual children, Mm. but there should be some flexibility that allows people to change what they're doing. And again, the whole all children phrase, I always hate because when they generally mean all, they mean non-SEN. But it comes and goes, the all children, on Mm. whether it means SEN or not. It's really unclear. And um, you shouldn't remove children from subjects to do blah, blah, blah. But yeah, there really should be exceptions to those rules for valid reasons. But talking about how you capture those sort of moments, if you're really struggling and you've got a class of 30 or 34, parents are your allies. Yep. So parents have the time or have more, they may not have lots of time, but they will have more time and they will have a vested interest in trying to get the best information out. So if a parent tells you that a child is doing something for a particular reason, that is gold dust. That's really good information you haven't had chance to capture and it's just as valid. And also if you do that thing where, you literally say, well, Beth just won't catch the foot, 
won't catch the ball and blah, blah, blah. And you can go, when we do it at home, she does. Like, what is it you do? What is it we do? Yeah. What's the comparison? What's the difference? And um, one of my favorite things in this zone was I was at a conference and somebody was saying that they had a nonverbal child. She hadn't spoken for years in school. Yeah, no one could get her to speak. And the parents sent in a video of her sitting on her dad's lap telling a story. Mm. They'd never heard this child's voice. And she's sitting there telling a story. And they looked at it and analyzed it. And she was sitting in a chair by a window. She was looking out the window. She was sitting on his lap, arms around her. She kind of felt safe and mm. secure. And they kind of recreated it. And then slowly took bits away, and uh, she was no longer nonverbal. Mm. But it took that insight from home to change. Absolutely. Minds. And you don't always know what you're looking at. And in her case, she couldn't catch a ball anywhere. <laughs> so that was a clear indication of a difference, as opposed yes. to it being situational and environmental. And I think that on the flip side of what you just said, which I think is really interesting, is that often in schools, we will see an issue and we'll assume that that's something that needs to be supported or diagnosed, and it might just be environmental. So yes. it may be an environmental support you need to put in place. It may not be a diagnostic criteria. And we're very good at, at situating issues within the child rather than within the environment. And I think that's quite dangerous because one of the concerns that we have is we have a whole bunch of children who are being told that they're not good enough and wrong and broken and need fixing, where actually it may be the environments we're putting them into that are not supporting them at all. Yes. Now, that doesn't mean for one second we shouldn't help our children to develop into a challenging environments, but we need to know what that is first in order to know how to do that rather than just assuming, oh, it's fine because we've done it this way for centuries. Actually, we haven't done it this way for centuries. We've done variations on for centuries. And education 50 years ago is very different to education today. Education yes. 20 years ago is very different to education today. So we can't say, oh, it's always been done this way, because it hasn't. You know, it really hasn't. No, because if you go back to always been done this day, they would still be in a coal mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, some might. <laughs> some might. But you know what it is? You literally go back on, yeah, it's always been done this way since this year. And why do we do it that way? That was one person's idea. We've all taken it on. Lots of things is we are most, I think, I think um, Lorraine Peterson and various others have mentioned like the education system we deliver is based on a 1950s middle class white child. <laughs> that is what our education system is aimed at in reality. Yeah. And it's mainly set up based on previous century principles. <laughs> So let's, yes. let's just, we'll leave that one where it is because we have what we have and we have to deal with the situation we're in right now. So without yes. wishing to redesign the whole of the education system, which I'll do tomorrow if you like, cool. but that's yes. not today's mission. So nope. today's mission is to help you have this conversation better. And one of the things that we need to think about is what, to understand what normal and typical development is. And this matters particularly to our colleagues in early years. If you're our listener in early years, the, the range of what's quote, normal, and what is normal development is quite wide, and it, that tends to get shorter as you get older. But there are particular places that you can look that will give you checklists for what you would expect a normally, typically developing child to be able to do at different 
ages and stages. Those are fine and dandy. There used to be a lot, a lot of them on NHS Choices. They've taken those down recently. I went back and had another look for them and they, they're not there. But there are lots of local authorities or NHS trusts who have that developmental pathway laid out for the 0 to 5s. It's normal for the 0 to 5s. I found a really nice one, which we'll put into the show notes, which I've given you details of, which is actually from Norfolk. Yeah, so, you've given me that. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes for you. Norfolk have a really nice one because it goes beyond 0 to 5, it goes into primary years and then it goes into teenage. So it kind of okay. talks about what's what sort of things you might be expecting to see at that stage. So that's your starter for 10. I was really struck in one of the podcasts earlier that um, I think it was Lorraine Peterson who said that actually in teacher training, you're no longer taught normal, typical development. And that's the place to start, actually, because otherwise you really don't have a strong foundation of what you would be expecting to see. You only have a foundation of what you have already come across, and that will change as you go through your career. Yes. So you need to know what typical development would look like. The second thing you really need to understand about typical development is that it is typical development, not everyone's development. So we we did a we developed a communication interaction framework, and as part of that, we were looking at letter sounds. Mm. And there's um, there's like there's figures for every, each letter sound. So if it's a blend or just letter sounds, that like fifty percent will get it by this page, seventy not whatever. Some of them, they're all quite close together, yeah? Some of them went over years, mm. Mm. much bigger. And you're like, well, where do we put this? And you're like, oh, that's a quite a bad one. Ooh, how, if it's 50% can do it age five, but 90% aren't doing it till age nine, what's the expectation? It's mm. like, wow. And you can, well, if you say we have to by five, well, that's, not, that's only half. So it, it was a real complicated issue. I didn't, I didn't realize that some certain developmental things some children get quite quickly and others it takes much much longer but that is still typical absolutely so the other thing the con thing that goes with that is to think about the bell curve now i don't know if any of you remember back to your science lessons you would have population densities and populations that would go from the far left end which would be a very narrow band to more and more and more and more and more examples in the middle which takes a, a nice big curve it hits the top and then it goes down again, curves off towards the right-hand side. That's a normal population distribution for anything. For the vast majority of things, you will get, that's the standard developmental distribution. curve. Standard distribution. Yeah. So very small numbers at the beginning, increasing, 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 peaks out and then goes down again, gets thinner at the ends. So when we talk about the which percentile you're on, that's it's it. not a flat. It, there's a bell curve, which yeah. you're not seeing. Yeah. It's and the 0.1. So Beth was what percentage on the 0.03. So that is hugely in that little bit down there. Minimal. Might be like five children. Yep. But somebody getting a one percent, they could be three hundred children. Yep. The lower you go, the less. Yeah, it's Absolutely. very much this bell curve is huge. So the variation in what is normal <laughs> is very very wide. Okay. Yes. So it's around having understanding that people do different things at different times and that if you have a child who is taking a typical development pathway, they will normally be developing in a whole host of things roughly around the same time. If you have a child who has developmental issues in particular areas, you may see a very spiky 
profile, the good old spiky profile. So maybe very, very good at some things and really struggle in others. And it's really important that you don't allow the areas where they're doing incredibly well to blind you to the fact they're really struggling in some other areas or Conversely, the exact opposite, that you don't look at an area where they're doing really badly and think they can't possibly achieve anything because they're dropping balls or they're not reading or, you know, whatever the thing is, that they don't yeah. have real strengths in physical skills or social skills or, you know, whatever the other things are. It's about a multidimensional, multifactorial picture that you're getting of this young person and the things that they will need for the whole of their life, not just to get through year R, year one, year six, year 11. <laughs> Year 13, university, work, life. (laughs) It's kind of, we have to look a bit wider. So I know that's a lot to think about when you're having a first conversation with somebody who's got a child who's about four. But one of the nicest, kindest things that anybody ever said to me in all these periods where I spoke to loads of people who did nothing but freak me out was a lovely teacher who was in reception who said, this has happened. It happens frequently. Don't worry. It's okay. That's a nice phrase. I like that. It was fantastic. Because if something happens to you and you're a parent, you don't know that this isn't the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody in the entire universe. My child hit somebody else once. I'm going to make them write to the United Nations and apologize. I did. I actually, my poor child, I made her apologize to somebody. She'd hit and write a letter and take it round and apologize. And I was that evil parent. I was appalling. My poor child, what I hadn't realized is that the other child had been tormenting her for ages and had been so sufficiently socially adept to prod her frequently until somebody else caught her doing it. And of course, the reception teacher who was a lady of a certain age who had seen most things happen and was very kind and very observant had seen this happen and then said, it's okay, this happens, don't worry. It's amazing. I remember um, my, my, my daughter, she's not a goody little two-shoes, but she's generally, she's on the spectrum. She likes doing things the right way. Yeah, so she will go tell someone, teacher, if someone says it's a lie, she oh, actually, that's not what happens. This is what happens. She's one of those. Mm. And, but when something bad happens to her, she wouldn't say. Mm. She took it on herself and... Mm. Something happened, and it was it was a Christmas decoration she'd made. One of her friends, or one of the friends, friends, but apparently parent friend, air quotes, lost theirs or didn't like theirs, so took hers Ooh. and wrote her initials on it. So, uh, and she, yeah, so she didn't do anything in the car because she didn't know what to do, so she came and she got upset, and I went in the following morning, and she goes, there's mine, and, um, and I showed it, and you could see my daughter's initials being rubbed out, and you just saw the look of the way the TA responded. This wasn't the first time. So the moment I saw her face, I went, "What? How? You know, you're going quite angry mm. as a parent, don't you?" Mm. And I'm quite calm, but I was always like going, I'm, "I'm, I'm there. I'm getting a bit angry. I'm a bit because you upset my daughter. I'm protective. I'm a dad. I'm." And TA reacted, and I just went, "Yeah, I'm, I'm finished. I don't need to do a single thing," because the way that person reacted, she was annoyed. It's happened before. It's this. It's that. And I was like, "Yeah, I, yeah, cool." They get this. They've understood me. They understand exactly what's happened and what this meant. I was written. It was just the way they react. And you don't want to hear, oh, it's never happened before. You don't want to hear, we don't have a bullying issue in our school. <laughs> no, no, no. They haven't seen <laughs> the bullying issue that's happening uh, in their school. I literally, what I, I want to do a collage of where every single member on the, I have guests I have on the same cast, I just say the phrase, we don't have bullying in my school. I just want to literally like a screenshot of every person's reaction because <laughs> they're all either laughing or just kind of, 
Yeah, right. Um, that's the thing. So you don't want to hear those things. Yeah, saying there is no bullying in. Yeah, the reason you're saying that is you're being bullied by the head teacher to say that. You might think that I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> to a line from David Nobbs' House of Cards. Yeah, it is. You want to hear? Yeah, we've had this all the time. Not to worry, but you don't want to hear that when it isn't that. No, and there are you some hear... things that are significant, obviously, and other things that are kind of so normal in terms of social interactions between children who are having certain difficulties with each other, and friend groups fall out, and frenemies do horrible things to each other, and all that stuff is what happens routinely it doesn't make it right but it does make it a familiar thing that has been seen before and it makes it less scary then but even saying this always happens the next one is yeah it doesn't always happen but i have seen this before yeah it's like when you get a build around oh i've done this one before oh cool he's, he's he's handled this problem before oh yeah we're fine with that yeah i've seen this one before perfect it's it's that sort of just by saying that it's reassuring you as a parent yeah, the one you don't so, want is the teeth suckers. I want to go. No. Mm. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, you don't know. Luckily, I've not. I've not seen many teachers do that. No, it's, I was thinking plumbers specifically. <laughs> yes, not, I know. Dear listener, I know <laughs> that's not you. That's never going to be you. <laughs> I know. I literally going. That's not something which is translated into the teachers' world. I do, but it seems like I do remember parents' evening. My child in year six. It was the beginning of the year. My daughter doesn't just doesn't read. There's nothing I can do to make her read. I try and find out her interests. I buy her factual books, fiction books, this book. What are you into? I'll buy you a book on that. I bought it to her. It sits there. Untied. She can't read. I talk to her about, do you like watch a film in your head when you read? Do you see it like as a film happening in your head? She's like, no, I'm trying to find everything. She doesn't read, right? So we're at the thing. We know she doesn't read. The teachers know she doesn't read. We're talking about the importance of reading, the benefits it will give her, the blah, the blah, the blah, blah, blah. If you don't read, it's really going to impact your results. As a teacher said that, let's look at your mock results. 118, which is uh, just below gifted, higher <laughs> level. Ah, yeah. Um, ah, yeah. Nothing to stand on there. Um, <laughs> ah, oh. Um, uh, but you should still... Yeah, you can have so much fun. But yeah, no, teachers generally have that. This is common. We see this all the time. It's not yeah, it's not the most common, but yeah, we've had this before. And what you want to say, not you obviously can't give, oh yeah, you know, you know, blah blah in year three, yeah, he's done this. Yeah, no, no. You want to do that, you can sit there and go, but again, oh yeah, he's got autism. I've had an autistic child before, I know what to do. No, no, don't no, do no, that. no, no, no. Please no, don't no, do that. No. <laughs> that would be really, really no, bad. No, no. Um I've had an autistic child. Tell me about your child. I, I understand they're all different. Yes. It is, it's about you can have a very different conversation with a parent than, and it is, but it always, always, I think I said this before, it always comes down to time and you've got to make time. It does. And it's partly about preparation and it's about knowing that that will have an impact. And one of the things, if you've got a parent and you're having a concern early in your school, you have the time to build the relationship that's going to really pay off, which is why it's helpful to do it earlier. Yeah. And it can be really difficult to make time, but it will pay dividends. Yes. So the other thing I need you to think about when you're having this conversation is that you choose the language you use very carefully. Yes. Because the language that you use really matters. And if you're the first person 
who talks to a parent about their child possibly being autistic and you say, oh, I'm ever so sorry, Mrs. Critchley. I think your your child might be autistic and okay. they're never so going to be I, okay. <laughs> what I just heard is very similar to, um, yes, we've received a diagnosis. He's got six months. Yeah. It was that sort of tone, wasn't yeah, it? absolutely. It's that absolutely. sort of vibe you're getting. Yeah. So that is really, really not going to help. And it's not going to help a parent to get over the shock of something that they weren't expecting or are worried about or just don't know about. And we all have this fear of the unknown. We've talked about seeking certainty and wanting to understand things. And that's how we feel safe. The minute somebody tells you that everything that you've ever expected may may no longer be true. It may be, and it may not. Everything that held your feet on solid ground has just been swept out from underneath you. And I suspect, dear listener, that you wouldn't like that. So it's really important that you think about how you choose that language. And if you say something more along the lines of, oh, we've seen that so-and-so is Beth's doing things differently to other children. We'd like to explore more about that, to learn more about what her strengths are and how she can use those strengths to help her develop into a a lovely adult that she can be. Brilliant. Fantastic. You've got me on side. I'm right there with you because I know you're trying to help my child go towards a future that will be the best future for her, whatever that is. And that's not to do with whether they're verbal or nonverbal. It's got nothing to do with what the it is. It's got everything to do with dealing with a child that you see in front of you in a way that is positive and helping them to grow into the best version of them that they can possibly be. And I think it's easier before dropping, I think they're, she's autistic or he's autistic, is Talk about some of those things you see in school. Ask about how they are at home. And you can even put out kind of pointers to, we don't, don't be too obvious. Do they do this at home? Do sort of, how do they play at home? And you kind of shout them in. What you kind of want to do is, is you can often end up the parents saying, well, yes, they do this and they do this. Do they do this? Not a lot of the time. And you can basically kind of get them to paint a picture of their child. Mm. You're picking certain things and go, yeah, all of this is quite common with autism. And you're kind of sort of laying the behaviours and seeing that a lot of children are doing this, but your child's not. It, it, it's delivering that, talking about the behaviours first and what, what is appearing before saying, I think your child's autistic, helps, I personally think. But there's other things as well. So I would always suggest that you have positive role models and examples ready. So I wouldn't even necessarily mention the A word, if you have no idea, if you don't know, there's no diagnosis and you've just got an inkling and some things that you think may be indicative of, you can say so-and-so has a tendency to or is showing traits of or seems to be behaving in a certain sort of way and we'd like to understand why that is. We'd like to understand what that is. It's exploratory. It's not labelling as such, but it's actually enabling the conversation to take place from the reality of what they're experiencing, not the fear of what you think, because the fear is attached to the label. It's not attached to the person. So if you think, I mean, I was brought up with two different versions of autism. And the one, the first thing I ever knew about autism was from a, a book called For the Love of Anne, which had these two parents talking in catastrophic terms about how their little daughter didn't do things and wouldn't talk and reacted badly when stuff happened. And, and I thought it was, at the time, I thought it was really lovely because clearly they adored her. Clearly they responded to her. Clearly they really cared for her. But I reread it knowing what I know now. And actually, I'm a bit horrified about what they did. <laughs> because, you know, in the same way that when you know better, you do better. 
yes. they didn't know how to help her and it was all being things being done to her things being said about her not helping her not actually working with her not trying to enter into her world and see how she would experience it and to understand what that was like for her. There's none of that. So I think it's really important that we actually think very carefully about what the child's experience would be and to read about people who have already gone through that process and who have their own experience, which is why we should always read about people. If we have an inkling of a label, you read first-person testimony from people who are autistic, who are dyslexic, who are dyspraxic, who have those skills. You know, there are some brilliant resources out there. And there's a particular one that I've put into the show notes for you, which was a um, an address written by Jim Sinclair, who's a neurodiversity advocate. He's an autistic man. And he wrote the most amazing essay, which is called Don't Mourn for Us. And it's an essay written to parents of autistic children. And what it says is that if you're autistic, you can no more remove the autism from the child than you can take uh, away the color of their eyes. It yep. is an inherent and integral part of them. And if you reject the autism, you are rejecting the child. And to, be, to reject that, to try and fix that in the way that I did so appallingly for my poor daughter at the time, because I didn't know better, when you know better, you do better, actually is rejecting them. And what we need, as every single human being on the planet, is to be accepted for the people we are, not We're rejected for the people we can't so be. so much better at that. We're getting so much better at accepting people for who they are. We've still got a long way to go, though. But generally, you a lot of time, your parents do this stuff out of fear to protect their children. Mm. Because if you are typical and normal and fit in, your life, we believe, will be easier or better. Not necessarily. Better yeah. in what context? Better from whose angle? Easier from whose angle? As you said, is it easier for me because I can just get on with how, what I was expecting? It's just lots of who is it better and easier for? Yeah. If we can accept people yeah. for who they are, everyone will be happier and more accommodating. And I think you're right. We are getting better at recognizing and accepting difference. We need to talk about difference, not deficit. We need yeah. to talk about people being the correct and right version of themselves, not a broken version of someone else. Um, podcast, Changing the Ds and ADHD with uh, Fintan O'Regan. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> same thing, same it idea. Is. And one of the things that autistic people particularly talk about is how important it is for them to have person-first language, which is that I would say I'm an autistic woman. My daughter says she's an autistic girl because you can't take the autism away from the person. It's not something, I'm not a person with autism. I don't carry it in a suitcase. It's not something I can put down on a Friday evening and go and change into my full-on drag to go and be on whatever. It's not, it's an indivisible part of, I'm a full package and I deserve to be recognized as that. That matters to autistic people. I would say if we're going to, we should accept people, we shouldn't even say the autistic part. It's, it's one of the, I sit there and I, I go, I know exactly what you mean by that, but it's, this is my, you hear people go, this is my autistic daughter. It's like, why did you need to tell me they were autistic? It, I, it can be, depending on the situation, some people sit there and go, it's like, oh, this is, this is my, this is what's wrong with them thing. So people can see it in different ways. And that's what the connotations are. That's when I've looked into this. That's what people's concern are. And ultimately um again we've done podcasting is do we need the labels and where we're heading to in the future at some point we shouldn't need the labels we shouldn't say i'm autistic i'm this i'm that we should need that it's 
I'm me. That's it. It's all I need to know. And from an educational point of view, the only reason we use labels is it's a shorthand and it's a shortcut and it can make things easier for people to get their head around the right accommodations that somebody might need. So they serve a function yes. in an educational context and that's perfectly fine and dandy because it matters to people and to some people your identity is made up of a whole bunch of different things sometimes for lots of autistic people to have that as part of their identity is important in the same way that for some people being a manu Uni, manu supporter sorry i've even got the name of it wrong because i'm so not into football <laughs> so it's kind of i suppose so some people, if you're a manu supporter say, i'm a manu you can supporter. put a flag on you can put yeah. a t-shirt on and again it's, it's literally looking into various things around this but yeah in some ways because you can't wear thing perhaps by saying it this is me presenting me People have a choice and they should have a choice. Yeah. And you it's important that you respect the choice of the people who you're talking to. So if in doubt, ask. The vast majority of autistic people prefer to be known as autistic rather than somebody with autism. There's lots of research to say that. So it's the respectful thing to do. And being respectful is a really good way of having that conversation. So I, I, I learned over years it was better to do with autism. And as I've done more talking with people who are autistic or people with autistic children and having these conversations, my mind is slowly changing. Not necessarily, it is, I accept that people prefer that, but ideally I don't feel we should have to. It's, it, but there's a whole wider conversation covering lots of other things other than autism and other yeah. things, gender, pronoun, race, religion. There's, That'll be a later one, Dale. That's a later we'll do one. that one yes. as a later podcast. Yes. Um, but that's yeah, not that's, today's that's issue. That's how I personally feel. That, <laughs> yes, it's... Um, but that's because I'm quite an open person. And if you, you and me start having a conversation and you're not making eye contact, I'm not going to go, well, sorry, are you going to look at me or what? I'm not. I'm going to sit there and go, okay, not making eye contact. I might find out later on the reasons why you might want to share that with me. But that's, yeah, it's a whole complicated issue. You might first, if I say this, you're not going to have negative judgments. I, yeah, it's, it's, but you, you do lots of arguments on Facebook about should it be with autism or autistic. Yeah, and the research uh, is done. The results are in. As far as the autistic community is concerned, it's autistic. Yes. Person first language rather than anything else. So yes. it, usually professionals prefer it the other way around because they feel more comfortable with that. But autistic people prefer it to be autistic. So there are some who don't, and that's why you should ask. But yes. the vast majority do. So the other thing to bear in mind is that when you're talking to parents, parents are often going to be quite scared, but that may not look like fear. That may look like anger. So yeah. when you are uncertain and unknown, in the same way that you may see some of the children at school don't react by looking scared, they may react by being cross, or they may react by lashing out, or they may react by shouting. That is equally a fear reaction. Yeah. And probably more specifically with men, I would say, than women. So in my experience, men tend to go to fighty quicker than scared quicker because it's more acceptable to be aggressive for a man than it is to be scared for a man. Now, that doesn't always apply. Obviously, there's a whole range of people and there are lots of single parent families who are father-led as well as single parent families who are female-led. So it will vary. But yep. you need to be aware that if somebody's coming into you and you're thinking, oh, for God's sake, I'm trying really hard and you're just getting really aggressive and cross, that may be because they're scared and worried and upset. It's just coming out as being cross. So don't read that as being aggression towards you. Read that as they're caring. Yes. If they care enough to get riled, then they care. And that's good enough. 
Yes. So what can you actually do that's going to make a difference? So if in all these moments of truth where people hadn't said the things that I wish they'd said, <laughs> I know I wish they'd said, what could you have said? What would I have loved you to say? So the first thing is for you to be an ally, to offer to be somebody who can stand alongside and help as much as you can. And it may be that what you can offer is quite limited, but offering anything is 100% better than this poor parent thought that they were going to get. Yep. Most parents have really low expectations of the help and assistance that's available, which is probably fortunate. But that does mean that you have the capacity and the ability to be an absolute hero. You could be the one person who changes the whole way they see their child into a more positive way, the whole way their child's supported into a really positive experience, albeit that there will be challenges and that there will be things that are really difficult. If you feel that you have somebody who's on your side and fighting for you and for your child, you will help so much more and you'll get a lot more out of any intervention that's offered. And we know repeatedly that parental engagement makes a difference to a child's educational outcomes. Companies that add to that, um, be humble. Yeah. So you might get to that point where you're discussing that their son has autism and you might sit there and go, I've, I've had lots of training, but tell me about your son. Hmm. Yeah. You Be humble. Yeah. Also, I think some, some parents may expect the Senko to be an expert in everything. Yeah. You're the oh, Senko. You should know it simple. all. <laughs> But generally, you could be an Asenko who's just been appointed because the last person left and you haven't done an Asenko course yet. And you have at, we, you, anywhere on that journey, yeah? You might literally be doing Senko for years, but actually this is the first time you've come across a child who presents this. Be humble. And um, various people, when I've talked to various parents, is sometimes people want to be seen as, a, as an expert and they're, they're worried that the people may find out they're not an expert. Be open, be honest, be humble and say, I don't know yet. And one of the most powerful things is I may not have the answer right now, but I'll go and find out. Yes, say that. Yeah, please, please, if you don't know, be the honest person and say it. You will win over so many people when you say that and later you come back with information because to me, You've gone and spent extra time looking at my child. Mm. My, my child is going to be, you're going to look after my child. Absolutely. Nobody knows everything. No. You know, we just, we said earlier that it's the joy of working with autistic people that everyone's different. So there won't yes. be a single human who you rock up and have an interaction with who you know everything about. No. <laughs> it's kind of, you don't have all the answers. You will not have all the answers. It's about finding out what matter, makes a difference for that individual. So it's really important that when you're offering help, you're realistic about what that can be. Don't offer the earth because you haven't got the time, the resources or the space to do it. Even if you want to be on side and a hero. So you need to be realistic about what it is. You need to say, I may be limited in what I can do, but what I can do is, and then say what you know you can offer. You must keep your promises when you've said you'll do something though. Definitely. It is crucial that you do that. And if you bear in mind that these will often be parents who've been let down multiple times in the past, Make a smaller promise and deliver on it rather than a bigger promise and fail. And if you cannot deliver... Then explain why. Explain why the barriers. And sometimes, as a, as a professional working in the school, you're on one side of the system. 
and the parents are on another and maybe go, look, I've not been able to do that, but this is some of your options. This is how you can fight it. Because a lot of the time, the Senko has to tow a line. And yes, they could be seen to be towing a line, but they can also be reaching out and helping you and explain to you, these are your options. Which brings me on neatly to the next bit that I wanted to talk about, which is all around how you can mediate the service that you that parents potentially have access to. Because one of the issues is that the process is opaque at best, which means it's difficult to navigate, it's complicated, and it requires strength, time, resources, and the ability that not all parents have to be yep. able to navigate that system. The chances are, if you've been in Senko for a while or if you've been in the system for a while, you probably know more about how to get an education, health and care plan and who needs to do what and when than your bog standard parent does. Yep. The system is very, very confusing. If it is something you don't know a lot about, then by all means, it's perfectly okay to signpost to somebody who does and say, I haven't done a lot of these, but the local... Sendias has. Your local parent partnership group will be able to help you. There are other people who you can rely on and here's where you go to them. I don't have the resources to do this in school, but talk to these people here and they will help. Yeah. It's not about being the only person who can support. It's about being the person who can help and guide in the right direction. You don't have to have all the answers. I've previously talked Senko is like when you go into a big hotel or a big building, you have no idea where to go. There's a person standing there, the receptionist. Mm. That sounds wrong that I'm comparing the Senko to the receptionist, but what you often are is you're that person that they can access. Yeah? Yes. There's 5,000 rooms in this hotel. Every or building, this building, every single room has an amazing expert in there. Which one do I go to? What do I need to get into that room? How do I get to that room? That is kind of a lot of time what the Senko's role is. They can't Mm. give you the answer. They know someone somewhere. This is how you get there. This is what you need to do. I'll put the contact in. That is kind of what the Senko's role is. You're not there to do everything. But as you said, a lot of time you are signposting, you're pointing, you're helping and making sure the parent finds their way. And it can make a massive difference because you may well have parents who have language difficulties. They may not have English as the first language. You, you will almost certainly have parents who have capacity issues if they're supporting a child who has particular needs and they're struggling at school at home as well. They may have other siblings. They may have other caring responsibilities. They may have demanding jobs of their own. They may be working two or three jobs. They may have health issues. There may be cultural difficulties that are going on as well and cultural differences. And You can often be somebody who can help to support and signpost within those. You have to bear in mind there will often be siblings involved and the siblings may need support as well. One of the kindest things that was ever done by my children's school was that they supported a referral to a sibling service for my son because we've been so involved in trying to sort things out for Beth that my boy had kind of got forgotten and he had his own needs. I say forgotten in inverted commas because he wasn't forgotten, but he wasn't getting as much airtime. Yeah, And so they put him into a particular program, which was fantastic. And it gave him time to explore different ways of communicating, different ways of exploring his emotions, different ways of helping other people. And they had this wonderful program that's only six weeks with a group of young carers and people who had neurodevelopmental differences. And they had a celebration at the end. And it was a fantastic thing to do for him to be there on his own, valued in his own way. And he got access to that because the school recommended it. So that was really lovely. And it was 
a weight off our minds because we were just trying to keep everyone alive at that point. <laughs> you know, sometimes these things yeah. happen and it happens at a time where you just don't have enough capacity to cope with everything. There's a particular example that you might want to consider, particularly in secondaries. Now, I know this happens more in secondaries than in primaries. Those secondary schools that ask children to arrange their parents' evening schedules <laughs> on their own. Oh, dear God, please, if you if you have a heart and you're in the welfare team or the pastoral team, and you know you have a child whose executive functioning issues would mean that they struggle to find their way into a crisp packet, can you please help them <laughs> to arrange that? Because otherwise, parents' evening is not going to happen. No. And it's no good saying that you don't have parental support if you've got a parent who wants to support, a child who can't navigate their way around carrying the same piece of paper around all of their teachers to get them to sign up to a random set of appointments in five-minute intervals, and one of them is at that part of the school and another's right the other side of the site. It's not going to happen. The thing that made a huge difference for us was when the whole school moved and started doing it electronically and did it all on a diary system. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was amazing. It's, it's got even better due to COVID. Has it? Vir virtual parents' evenings, oh, yeah? Yes. So you literally, you book it digitally. So you go, I want to see all these parents, these teachers, yeah? You go, duh, and it arranges it all. You then get a list, and you basically sit here like we're sitting, yeah? yeah? And you start talking. You literally go, join, and you have your conversation, and it goes, you've got a minute left, 10, 9, 8, and you can see it. And you get to 1, and it, you cut off. Okay, and then I'm you click join. two minds about that, but yeah, I get. That. I love it because you're not being delayed by that. You, you logistic, logistic, but you get five. You get your five minute slot. Mm. You're not getting to your slot late and then feeling pressured because someone's hovering over you because you're running late because the previous. Get rid of all of that. You've got your five minute slot. It starts on time. It ends on time. It is so good. And our parents have done, us, we've done it with two children, two sets of parents evenings, and the parents have asked to keep it. Hmm. parents have asked to keep it. I think that would be 100% better. But that's just an example of where executive functioning issues, organisational issues can trip you up and yeah. it makes a difference to both the child and the parent and to the school. So trying to get that team working together, you have to look at your systems and how those are working to make sure that they are functional yes. and not non-functional. So that's a really good one. The other thing you need to think about is the level of educational disadvantage that parents might have or financial disadvantage. So they may not be operating on a level playing field. And it may be that you have more resources than they do. There was a a particularly good example um, of a school that I went to and there was this young autistic girl who had come into the school, really struggled, wasn't playing with anybody, wasn't able to work in class well with anyone, was really disengaged and not learning. And the parent was having a really rough time, actually had been diagnosed with breast cancer, was undergoing treatment and English wasn't her first language and she was living in poverty. And the school managed to get the education, health and care plan sorted for this young girl. They took her, her sort of set up into careful thought. They put it all together. They supported the parent through her treatment. They made sure she had access to the social services support that she needed, the societal support that she needed. And the parent described me personally with tears flooding down her face, the difference it made for her daughter to be able to come home and talk to her. And this had been a child who had not spoken. And that was because one head teacher and one Senko made the difference. And that's incredibly powerful. And we don't know what situation parents are in unless we have the humility to ask. We can't just assume that their experience is ours. 
There's an amazing thing in autism called theory of mind, and it makes me laugh my head off because it's apparently autistic people can't have theory of mind, which means that autistic people can't understand what other people are thinking and feeling. And the number of times in our systems and procedures, it's non-autistic people who are demonstrating they have no clue what's going on in anybody else's mind, and they're not willing to try. Yeah. It's a theory of mind issue. Yes. So I like, as again, one of those lovely, sickly, sweet Facebook um, uh, pictures on the wall messages. It's not YOLO. Uh, it is, you might not be able to change the world, mm-hmm. but you can change the world for one person. Oh, yes. Just one person at a time. That'll yeah. do. Literally, one thing you do extra, yeah, might not make a big change. You literally, you've done that. You look around, nothing's changed, but you've literally made that person's life much easier, much better. It's, yeah, pay it forward, all that stuff. If we all um, do it, it makes it so much better. And just be kind. So we're talking about working from and within strengths. We've talked about that a little bit before. So you start from the strength of the young person. You can also start from the familial strengths as well. So if you're in that position where you're talking to a parent and you think, oh, my God, this is a parent who's Googled everything, read every book, and, not, and frankly, they know a bit more than I do, use that. Yeah. Say, fantastic. That's wonderful. Is there anything that you've come across that I could use or would be helpful? Don't be scared to say that you haven't read every single book on every single subject because actually nobody has. And it's okay to say that. So if you have somebody who's in that position, use that. If you have a child who's really struggling and you suddenly think this is going wrong, that's going wrong, the other thing's going wrong. One of the lovely examples that I know of is um, an amazing saint called Gareth Morwood. So big shout out to Gareth, if you happen to be our listener this week. One of the things that he does is send postcards home. So whenever anything wonderful happens, he'll send a postcard home to say, X did an amazing such and such today. So that the conversations you have are not always negative. One of the issues around this diagnostic conversation, the there's a problem with conversation, is that that's the only conversation you've had. Yep. When you've had lots of positive things in the run up to that, or they're balanced with other positive things, you have a relationship, you don't have a crisis. Yes. So we need to work from that. We need to work on from the strengths so that somebody is able to do more. Because if you start from their strengths, they will have greater capacity to be able to do other things. If you start from an area of weakness, you're putting more pressure on an area that's already weak. If you use a strength, you're using something where there is energy, there is capacity, there is strength. It makes people braver. Mm -hmm. So they can try things they wouldn't be able to try before. They can risk things that they wouldn't be able to risk before. A parent will be able to risk sharing things with you. If you have been human and open and honest and tried to support, they will trust you with information about them and their situation you would never have known otherwise. And it may be vital for their child. Yes. What we want to get to is a situation where you're exploring together and to understand that nothing is final in a young person's life. You're just a short period of it. And whatever you're experiencing right now doesn't mean that that will be what happens next year or the year after or the year after or the year after. If you told me when Beth was seven that I would be sitting here talking to you about her time at university and that she would be as happy as can be in there and living her very best life and just so delighted that she was able to do that. I wouldn't believe you. I wouldn't have believed you. I would not have been able to understand that this stressed out, how the hell do I fix this issue that I thought it was at the time, would turn into, wow, look at the human you've become. Wow. And we have to take a longer-term view. And part of that is around... Talking to the child and thinking about 
how to capture their view and how that would work. And you might start to do questions like, would you like to? Let's such and such. Shall we? Such and such. What if we, rather than you need to, you're going to, I'm telling you, you must. It's a very different way of doing it. And it elicits somebody wanting to do something. The growth mindset is really hard because often you know lots of opportunities. You know mm. lots of options. You know what they could be. You're looking at them, oh, you can do that. You probably could end up here. You look at all those things. But you're asking a child who really has no idea what the possibilities are. Even a typical developing child, you ask them, what do you want to be? My dad's a policeman. And my mum works here. So um, policeman out of those two, that's my choice, isn't it? I've got two choices. Yeah. My dad's job or my mum's job. Um, it's Or I want to be a footballer. But no, they're, they're, what, they're anti what they're expecting, what they can see is very limited. And you've kind of got to help them see what the options are. But to do that, you've got to help them. You've got to, you've got to understand that they really, you're asking them a question which they don't really understand. And there's something about that not being too big a step, about yes. it being a very small step. So if, for example, you were trying to work on something that was food related, <laughs> this one, this is a call out for the parents out here. So you may want to say something like, you're great at trying this, perhaps, but this will help you too. And yeah. make it something they want to do. Yeah. So if you think you're great at going to Cubs, but this will help you to go to Cub Camp because it's giving you a skill you'll need. If they love Cubs, that would be something that would help to motivate them. It's about taking it just that one step further. You don't have to know the whole of the journey to then know the next right step. Yeah. And it only has to be the next right step. You sometimes don't even have to mention the, the end part. You, no. you might hide that from them because that would be mentioning that would just ah no don't want to do that so you might just literally well, we're going to do this and we do it and then what you do when you take the fourth step you go look you've taken four steps this is what we're working towards look how far yeah it's how you deliver that information is really important but it needs to be about things that they care about and yes. things that they love and starting from there. So just as we're coming towards the last section, I'm very aware, I'm sorry, we've gone on again because we are passionate, we can't help ourselves. I promise this is the last bit, honest. Honest. <laughs> honest, honest. The last bit was talking about late diagnosis. So a lot of the things, the people who are coming to the podcast might think, oh, this is only for people who have younger children or who are talking to younger children. Mm -mm. Nah. Um, I'm here to tell you that I'm working with increasing numbers of adults who are coming forward for diagnosis who really struggled and found that things have been really difficult for them as a result of being identified late, very late. We're getting better at making that slightly earlier, but you may still be having conversations with people who have kind of coped or kind of flown under the radar or kind of just haven't made enough noise, have been quiet and not noticed, or but their are behavior. still really struggling. Their behavior is what was seen, not the yeah. causes underneath. Yeah, exactly. So the things that you need to think about, the areas that where that might happen is if you have a child who has a very complex profile. So maybe they they may be twice exceptional. They may be very gifted and really struggle. They may be girls. So girls tend to be diagnosed much later in terms of autism, ADHD, and pretty much everything else than boys because they kick off less. <laughs> and usually yep. it's outward behavior that's noticed more than inner behavior. Yep. And boys who are quieter 
and who don't present with behavioural challenges tend to be picked up later as well. So if you're a boy who can make eye contact because they're staring at that bit in between your eyebrows because they've worked out that's what you need to do without actually knowing that there's a finesse to it. (laughs) Sorry, that's my boy's speciality. That's what he does. They would be picked up later, usually. So this will be happening in secondary. This will often happen when social um, needs are getting more than their capacity to be able to manage them. And adolescence is a nightmare for everybody. It's particularly difficult for anyone who has a non-traditional profile. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So what we're thinking about there is thinking about planning on success. Always talk about what went well. I love www, what went well. Talk about what went well, because there'll be lots where they feel they're failing, they feel they're screwing up left, right and centre and everything in their life is terrible. Actually, that's probably not what's happening. There are probably things that are good as well, but we need to reinforce those. There's an interesting study that said that children who are diagnosed with ADHD have 10,000 more negative comments said to them by the age of 11. Wow. Than non-diagnosed children. Wow. 10,000. If you think of the impact of that on their well-being, there's a thing in ADHD which is very common called rejection sensitive dysphoria, which is basically I've been told that I'm rubbish so often I'm going to assume that everything that you say and do is going to assume that I'm negative and wrong. Yes. So I'm going to feel that you're rejecting me already, regardless of whether you are or not, because that's what's normally happened. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to commit. Yep. What's the point? You're going to think I'm rubbish. Yeah. That's a shocking fact. The thing is, it's a shocking fact. And yet, I kind, of already, I kind of already knew it. Hmm. I kind of already knew it. Yeah. That's. Um, it's a why have you forgotten your book again? Where's your PE kit? What did you do with that writing? Why are you writing so scrappily? Why have you done that so quickly? Why didn't you start it? You had, you know, it's ah, all of that stuff. I did, I did, we did a whole podcast on Finton about conforming or not. And, and yeah, just the more I do these podcasts, the more, again, secondary school is probably the worst part because you've lost that support from mum and dad because they're older. They should be able to do it on their own. They have to be very independent, but they're not quite ready. They need the support. The support's not there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's literally, it's, you've got to get through the education system and out the other side if you're neurodiverse. And, and then all you can you need... start again. In secondary, to make a difference, is one hero teacher. And it doesn't even have to be the Senko. So one of the loveliest things our Senko did for my boy was find a woodwork teacher who was clearly neurodiverse. And he went to woodwork class, woodwork club after school, because it was somewhere that was safe and he had a nice time. It made him comfortable. It made him cope with the rest of the day. It gave him something to look forward to. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So just to finish up, the time where you can do this really well is if you have a child who has an education, health and care plan, you're thinking about annual review. You're also, when you do an annual review, what you're trying to do is you're trying to look forward and you're trying to look forward to a positive future. You have to set it in the context of a positive future. Lots of our children right now are struggling to see themselves in a, po- in a future that's positive in any way, shape or form. We have to paint a picture of a better future for them or why would they bother staying? So thank you to every single teacher, Senko, paediatrician, parent, Sendias member, parent partnership group, NHS person, voluntary sector person who has made the difference for that one child. You are my heroes and I salute you.
I can even add in a driving instructor who listens to this podcast because he wants to make a difference. And he yes. knows who he is because he's messaged me. Yeah. And that's thing. I literally got the message. I was like, that is so nice because you literally, you, the fact you're, you're already listening, the fact you're reaching out and making a difference, you're already on the right path. You're already doing it right. You're already going to literally, all you're going to be using this going, yep, yep, yep. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do. You're not going to question what Sarah said, Sarah Jane said. You're going to be going, yep. Okay. Oh, I didn't do that, but I'll do that. Because you want to make a difference. And you, uh, every listener to this podcast makes a difference. We just need to reach more people. So please subscribe, share, and send to as many people as you know and love. And even yes. some of those you don't who you think need it. <laughs> it's kind of, we don't don't use it as a weapon. Don't use it. I hate you. Have this. <laughs> no, 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 that's not what we talk about, Sarah Jane. <laughs> share through love. Um, so thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> and yes, Sarah Jane's mentioned a couple of the links. So the developmental milestones, don't mourn for us, and some and growth, some growth mindset stuff. So I'll be sharing those in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed already, please head over to the website. You'll find subscription links to all the different platforms we'll be on. And the website is www.thesendcast.com. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at The Sendcast. And on Facebook and Instagram, we are simply The Sendcast. And if you listen to us on iTunes or through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let others know what you think. And before we go, I'd like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website. You'll find a number of guests on The Sendcast, like Sarah Jane, our speakers at our virtual Send conferences. We run a conference every year with 12 sessions, which are around 40 to 50 minutes long, which are designed to make a difference in your school, to make a difference for pupils with SEN. So each conference, 12 sessions, and each conference costs £60. So that's 12, 11, 11, 12 hours worth of CPD for all your staff for £60. It's really good value for money. Because we want to get all the staff trained, the more staff we can get trained around SEND, the more we can get this message out, the better it is for all staff. Unless the Senko is fighting on their own, they're more together. It's, it just benefits everyone. And to find out more, you can visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And there's an exclusive gift to all your Sendcast listeners. You can get 10% discount on our virtual Send conferences, future or past by using the code SENDCAST10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the SENDCAST. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me, dear listener. Bye.